The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. We're glad you found us. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Have you ever wondered what the difference is between herbs and spices, but were too embarrassed to ask? Don't worry, you're not alone. I had no idea until I began eating plant-based. The difference comes down to which part of the plant is used. If it's the plant leaf, it's an herb. If it's another part, such as dried seeds, roots, or bark, then it's a spice. Both are incredibly healthy and both are delicious. And that is a quotation from Healthy at Last by Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, who will be our guest after the break, that's just one little tidbit of amazing things that I've learned in this enchanting book. And guess what's going to happen before that? We are going to go undercover. Well, we will at least feel as if we've gone undercover with an award-winning photojournalist and founder of Trax Investigations, Gem De Silva. And while everybody's being introduced, I'm Victoria Moran, your host for this program. Thank you so much for being here. And if you want to know more about what goes on in the world of Main Street Vegan, then our website is MainStreetVegan.net. And if you just text the word vegan to 55444, you will get our blog and newsy letters and all kinds of inside scoop. But you know what? The inside scoop right now is that Gem De Silva is on the line and he has such incredible stories and heartbreaking and uplifting ones from his three and a half decades documenting the use and abuse of animals used for food, entertainment, religion, and research. The work that he has done has changed minds and laws and improved the lives of millions of animals worldwide. Humbly, I welcome you, Gem De Silva. Hi, Victoria. Thanks ever so much for inviting me onto the show. Really looking forward to sharing some of my, some of my stories. Well, let's, let's just jump right in. First, give us a little background. How, how did you go from being a mild-mannered regular guy <laughs> to getting involved with animal protection? 
You're absolutely right. I was not a traditional animal lover. You know, when I was growing up in Sri Lanka and in London in the UK, I grew up in cities and I didn't really have much affinity with animals. I didn't, you know, have, um, I didn't, my parents, I didn't pester my parents to have a pet. I wasn't particularly enthralled by animals at a zoo. Um, so I was a regular, yeah, you're absolutely right. I was a regular guy liking music, following my favourite soccer team. And it was only when I got into college, I got involved with social justice issues. You know, I volunteered at a welfare rights centre helping homeless people and people had fallen through the net. And I became socially aware. I suppose it's partly because it, it was in my blood because um, my great grandfather, 101 years ago, stood for Parliament in the UK and uh, for the Cooperative Party. And he was a campaigning journalist campaigning for social justice issues. So it was kind of in my blood. But what really turned me on to the animal issue was reading the seminal book um, by Peter Singer, Animal Liberation at College. And it blew, it blew, blew away my mind, really, because it talked about the issues of speciesism and things like racism and sexism have been so close to my heart. And I just thought, actually, I really need to follow the path of speciesism. And, you know, speciesism is giving respect to all animals. And I felt I just had to follow that path. Well, you have followed it to a degree that leaves the rest of us in, in awe and hoping maybe um, somehow in some life we can do half as much as you've done in this one. So let's get right into some stories before the time gets away from us. What are a couple of investigations that have really had an impact on you? I think um, for tracks, you know, I've worked for tracks investigations and tracks investigations helps animal organizations throughout the world, creating content, going undercover. Um, we've done 250 projects at the moment um, in 57 countries. But I think the ones that had most impact is perhaps fur farming. We've done a couple in projects on in Belgium and in France. And fur farming is, I mean, it's a horrific, it's a horrific industry. These are wild animals, you know, Arctic foxes, mink, and silver foxes are kept in cages where normally they'll be able to roam around hundreds of miles. And when they're kept in these barren, tiny cages, and a couple of organisations contacted us and said, we really want to try and get fur farm banned. And this was the first one investigations we did was in 2009. And so we went to Belgium and attained footage of fur farms and helped the organisations do some public campaigning about it. But it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. So we went back there again in 2012 and again in 2015. And eventually the public pressure aligned with political campaigning. Because we like to work with organisations that have a political objective. And finally in 2018 we found out that Belgium is going to ban fur farms. So that was an absolute victory. And, you know, we have saved thousands of animals in, in Belgium, thousands of mink and foxes from living, from saving them from despicable lives. 
Oh, I'm so happy that, that you told us one with a happy ending. I knew about the, the Belgian law, but I didn't know that it was largely because of you. So, wow. Um, and also, we've just done very similar investigations in France. I mean, we've done three investigations over the last five years. And some great news, Victoria. Last month, France has decided to ban fur farms. So something 12 years ago that we thought was quite impossible or very difficult to achieve or we might just get public awareness on the issue we've actually stopped the production oh of fur farms and i'm always i mean there's that great quote by ruth bader that she says real change enduring change happens one step at a time so it took 12 years for this to happen you know it didn't happen overnight but you know, we've had wonderful successes and we, you know, I'm really pleased to know that those I've saved the help, save the lives of millions. Well, in this case, thousands and thousands of mink. Yeah. So. Oh. Well, whenever France changes something, you know, the world is going to change because they just have all these iconic ways of living that in my mother's and my grandmother's generations were synonymous with style, whether it was food or clothing. If they did it in France, you just didn't ask questions. You just aspired to that. And the idea that they are now coming to see the cruelty in fur, it, it just, it bodes well, I think, for, for the whole world. So something I want to ask you is just the the practicality of doing what you do. I mean, you go to all these countries and you go through customs and they say, why are you here? Do you say we're going to film fur farms in hopes of getting them outlawed? <laughs> no, we don't. We don't. Um, we There's a number of things. Sometimes we go on tourist visas and we can be, you know, we've, we've got obviously a lot of video camera and equipment. So we can be, you know, wildlife photographers or nature photographers um and yeah so we generally don't get asked too much at customs and and the other thing is um we're also journalists you know we actually do have um members of the the national union of journalists so we're international journalists and we have press cards so we have various different hats when we do an investigation but at customs we generally haven't been asked we haven't been asked even when i went to the states i remember we just said we were journalists and they just they were happy <laughs> what did you film over here well we came over to film um broiler um, chicken industry this was back in 2010 and there really hadn't been that many broiler industry um, investigations into the broiler industry in 2010 so and one of the things we had to do there is the organization that we worked with wouldn't allow us to do trespass on to gain access to the farms because of the ag-gag laws obviously that you have over there so we had to think of ingenious ways of trying to get access to the farm so we pretended to be investors into the farm so <laughs> we got these real estate people showing us around farms because we said we were going to buy them <laughs> and it was an incredible opportunity to actually see what was the reality inside these broiler units and also hear the stories of the, the people working in these units Tell, tell us a little bit of their story. Well, I mean, 
obviously there's two stories in broiler farms one is what happens to the chickens and i think that that is the main story i mean broiler broilers are chickens bred for meat and we went to actually went to georgia and as you may know georgia is kind of if it was a country it would be the sixth biggest provider of chickens in the world it's the broiler chicken industry is absolutely huge in in georgia and these are birds bred bred for meat um they live a pitiful 42 days you know and when their forebearers or their their ancestors would have lived six or seven years their jungle fowl ancestors and they're just basically genetically bred for their bodies outlive their their lives you know their legs can't keep can't keep their body weight um so they end up lying in basically um the ammonia and the chicken feces it, it's 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 a horrendous it's a horrendous life for these birds but also it's not a brilliant life for the contract farmers that actually have to look after these birds you know they're they're contracted by these companies and they have to produce a, a certain number of chickens and it's yeah so and we also looked at the yeah it, it was it was it was a terrible industry throughout really well, it is a terrible industry throughout. And you just reminded me, we had a, a guest, oh, maybe uh, nine months ago, Leah Garces from Mercy for Animals. And she talked about befriending a chicken farmer and just listening to him and sharing a little bit with him. And over a few years time, he got out of the chicken contracting business and got into the CBD business. <laughs> <laughs> just started doing incredibly well. So there there are certainly alternatives. Now, there was something in your intro that really jumped out at me. I mean, I'm very familiar, and I think most of our listeners are familiar with, you know, the um, fashion industry, the agriculture industry, research. But you said religion. Tell us about that. Well, there, I've been to a couple of festivals and this is um called adel adda which is uh, a religious festival at the end of the lead festival and i've been to france belgium and turkey on separate occasions and unfortunately this is where at the end of the festival they make a sacrifice and unfortunately the sacrifice is an animal and i've been able to document the absolute cruel way that the sacrifice happens. Now, this is slaughter without stunning. So I've been able to infiltrate, perhaps the wrong word, but actually document the incredible suffering of animals when they're literally in front of you, when you see the animals in front of you and their throats are slit by untrained slaughter people. You know, they're trained by, they're killed by families. And I mean, it literally is rivers of blood. When we went to Turkey, there was an aerial photo photograph of the rivers on, on the sea and it was red. It was red. There was about 16, 17 slaughter sites in Istanbul. And yeah, it was a horrible thing to witness. But I'm trying to be positive here as well. You know, we were working with local people there 
who were trying to get uh, slaughter facilities um, put in place there. And we, you know, it has had some success. So even though you know I'm a vegan and I don't like to see slaughter, but what I really don't like to see is slaughter without stunning when animals aren't stunned. And yeah, it's those images really will stay with me for the rest of my life. I'm sure they will. Well, thank you so much for, for all your courage. So having done this for 35 years, seeing so much torture, so much suffering, how do you keep from having post-traumatic stress disorder? How, how do you get along in life? Well, as you say, I've seen so many ages of factory farms, monkey farms, cruel animal transport. And yes, I think religious slaughter is potentially the worst I have seen. But I always have to say these images are not for me to keep, really. You, know, you have to keep remembering that. It's kind of your duty to put them out in the world. And that's what keeps you saying, knowing they're not my images. They're the images that can be used to educate people. They can be used to raise public awareness. They can be used to influence legislators. And I know they have. And that really, that's quite heartwarming, really. That actually knows that your actions have made a difference. So that's on, on one level. And on the other level, you know, I've probably, you know, I... I do yoga. I've been doing yoga for 15 years to just try and relax and meditation as well to try and relax, to breathe. Um, I have I have a life outside doing animal investigations. You know, I'm, I'm a very keen sports person. I uh, that's the yang to my yin of yoga <laughs> and I grow vegetables. I'm a great, you know, the last 15 years, I've got a big backyard of perhaps some. Um, size of a, a double test size of a tennis court where I grow vegetables and then I I relax I get down with the earth in I dig and I chill out <laughs> so yeah uh, it, it's 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 important to have those breaks so you're not always constantly watching or viewing distressing images Oh, I'm I'm sure. Oh, that, and it's wonderful that you figured all this out. But I have to say, a garden the size of a double tennis court to me in a New York apartment—that that sounds like you're a major farmer. <laughs> well, actually, this is—I've got a regular-sized garden at the back of the house. It's brilliant. It's with the in the UK, uh, we have these things called allotments, and these are communal areas that you can grow vegetables. And I've. I'm very lucky to actually my house backs onto one of these things. So I actually rent it off the council for equivalent of $50 a year. And it's fabulous. And, you know, I spend most of my time there just relaxing when I'm not looking at horrible images. Well, and, and you, you need it. I'm so, so happy that, that you have that. So how has animal protection changed in the time that you've been doing this? So I first started investigating animal issues in 1988, um, and no one had done that before that before that period. So it, in the UK certainly, and it was a very niche issue, and it really wasn't a mainstream issue at all, you know. Um, and now fast forward onto now, veganism is a mainstream issue. Back then, 
it was seen as a slightly cranky issue. I'm sure you can remember that period, Victoria. That oh, absolutely, because I researched my first book in the UK in 1981, okay. <laughs> so I very much remember. And it was, you know, there was it was seen as a cranky movement. It was if you were into animal rights, you know, even environmentalists thought you were crazy. You know, it, it was now animal rights is 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 in the mainstream. I mean, whereas then. It was championed by just a few people. Now, you know, animal rights is being championed by scientists, educators, mainstream chefs, you know, legislators, lawyers, entrepreneurs, you know, and innovators. They're all coming into this plant-based movement. And it's it's a fascinating new world. And it's, you know, it's taken time. It's taken a lot of your time. And, and I'm hope that some of the images that I've been providing for the last 35 years of factory farms have actually contributed to the public awareness. And yeah, it's a great time for the plant-based movement at the moment. It really is. It, oh, it is indeed. It's very exciting to, to just see where it's going to go between all the work that, that people like you have been doing for so long and then all the wonderful health people and then the technology around the food, it, it's stunning. So not a minute too soon, but how wonderful that it's happening. So just take us back to your, the very first family farm that you filmed in. Was that just kind of like, oh yeah, everything I saw I expected, or was, was it a shock even though you had read up? Indeed, I had read up, but I think nothing actually prepares you for when you go into a factory farm. Um, it was actually a broiler unit, similar to the one that I described in the US. And first of all, I remember going into this antechamber and you open this antechamber, this door, and you see a, a list in front of you and it's called a cold sheet. And it shows you the number of animals that have actually died in that unit. And you think, how can this be normal? You know, they're ex it's, a, it's just the normality of death in factory farms. And then I opened the main door to the unit and I saw 20 to 30,000 birds in front of me. It was a sea of white. And all my senses were attacked at that moment. Um, it really was. And the most thing you don't think about is the smell. The smell of ammonia is absolutely horrific. It burns your nostrils, mm -hmm. it burns your eyes. And it's from the ammonia. It's from where these poor chickens have been spent for six weeks lying on their, on their feces. It's absolutely horrendous. And then the noise, you've got twenty to 30,000 chickens squawking. But, and also you've got these industrial fans going around. And then you've got, then it's the visuals. And yeah, it, it's, it's shocking. It's shocking. But as a filmmaker, and this is when I was, you know, I was a filmmaker and that's how I got involved in factory farms. You've got to really then pull yourself, pull yourself senses together and think, okay, I need to be professional. I need to start documenting these birds. But it's incredibly hard. As I mentioned before, you see, you know, one bird that can't walk in front of you. And then you see another one that's got red that's got no feathers and you think what should I document and it's um yeah it's it's a it's an experience 
And all the while you think, I haven't got much time here. I shouldn't be here. So you're always looking at the clock thinking, I've been here too long. It's a, uh, yeah, it's quite an adrenaline pumped um, situation when you go into a factory farm. Mm. And I, you reminded me of, of going into a, a factory farm where there was an egg operation that I visited and, and the smell, I had forgotten that that smell is the first thing that no- that knocks you over. And, and in slaughterhouses as well. I think if we could document the smells as well as we document the sights and the sounds, <laughs> we'd go even further. And the smell just lingers on to you. That's the oh, other yeah. thing. It's, yeah. you know, you come a couple of days later, you know, or that night you try and wash it out of your hair and it just doesn't go away. <laughs> it's, and, yeah, I, I think when we've got our new sensory... Um, social device that can smell <laughs> that you can smell things as well as you hear that that will really be quite powerful yeah well uh, what you do is so powerful now and for the past 35 years the website everybody is tracks investigations t-r-a-c-k-s investigations.org you can find them uh, on uh, twitter at tracks eco spooks and on instagram tracks dot eco.spooks and of course we'll have all that on the show notes at mainstreetvegan.net so in just our our final few minutes here what makes you hopeful how how does the future look going ahead well i think as i said victoria uh, victoria i think it has changed in the last 35 years i was so i, I i'm an optimist and I really believe the power of the image to create change and change has happened. I have seen change in my lifetime. I have seen people move to plant-based diets. I've seen the animal movement become mainstream and I've seen it as we're not seen as cranks. We know we're seen as rational people and yeah, I'm heartened of the fact that I can actually go and buy oat milk down the and vegan ice cream at my local corner shop you know that that makes me you know the small changes are just as important you know it's i yeah i think there's a real opportunity and with the innovators coming in with the entrepreneurs i think there's never been a time for plant-based diet you know it's a no-brainer really because if you're worried about animals if you're worried about the environment or if you're worried about health plant-based is absolutely the way to go it's the way to go. And then we can worry about other things, <laughs> like uh, maybe making this planet as beautiful as it was meant to be. My goodness, Gem De Silva, Tracks Investigations, thank you for being a hero for the animals and an inspiration to the rest of us. And everybody else, stay with us. We're going to have another hero coming up, Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. 
Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I want to let you know, if you don't know already, that Main Street Vegan Academy, which you've probably heard about all over the place because the way news spreads these days, (laughs) things get to be pretty well known pretty quick. We've been on since 2012 training and certifying vegan lifestyle coaches and educators. But until now, it was always in person in New York City. And we're going to be back in person in New York City again, because this COVID thing is not going to last forever. But what we have discovered is that through the magic of Zoom, you can have the incredible experience of Main Street Vegan Academy, where you can become a certified vegan lifestyle coach and educator in the comfort of your own home. So do check that out. Just go to MainStreetVegan.net, click on Academy. We have a Zoom class starting in January, and that means that by March, you will be a VLCE, Vegan Lifestyle Coach and Educator. And so many of our graduates go on to do entrepreneurial things. We've got Kat Mendenhall, cowboy boots and jail fields out there with the colorado springs vegan cooking academy we've got um light life cheese and yogurt all kinds of people doing fabulous things in the world and guess what's fabulous in our world right now that is our next guest a great friend of mine i'm honored to say someone i just admire from here to Sunday, and that is Eric Adams. He's Brooklyn Borough President, having previously served three terms in the New York State Senate and 22 years in the New York City Police Department. After being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes in 2016, he adopted a plant-based diet and successfully reversed his diabetes. And this is chronicled now in the most delightful compelling. It reads like a novel. And oh my goodness, why isn't every health book like this healthy at last? A plant-based approach to preventing and reversing diabetes and other chronic illnesses. Welcome, Eric Adams. Thank you so much. It is so good speaking with you. You know, when you say I am one of your favorite people, you know, I just adore you in all that you are doing, and thank you for allowing me to speak with your audience. Oh, bless you. Well, I just want everybody to read this book. It, I didn't expect this. I have to tell you, I knew it was going to be an excellent book on whole food plant-based eating. I knew it would be beautifully presented, and it would have good information. I did not even have a clue that it was going to draw me in, that it was going to be one of these books that I kept staying up later to keep reading. Because you tell stories in here. You bring in history. 
you make it so alive why we need to be eating this way. So let's back up. Tell us what happened in 2016 and what's going on now. I believe that I was consuming uh, the standard American diet. And I think that's why the acronym SAD speaks for itself. And it was after I finished my policing career, after I served uh, close to four terms in the New York State Senate, that I was in the middle of my first term as the Brooklyn Borough President. And I, I was experiencing really discomfort in my stomach. And I knew it wasn't gas because it was just sitting in one place, like a knot that was there. I, Victoria, I thought sure it was colon cancer because I lost a good friend to colon cancer and the symptoms were so similar. And when I went to, the, when I woke up that morning to go to the doctor, uh, I could not see the alarm clock. I thought it was sleep in my eyes and I just kept blinking to try to clear my eyes. But in fact, it was permanent. And when I got to the doctor, he had me go do a, a procedure to check my colon and to check my stomach. And he sent me to the ophthalmologist as, as well. And the ophthalmologist actually stated that, Eric, you know, you, 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 you're legally blind. You should not be driving. You have to turn in your driver's license. And I had my stomach checked and it was what I was feeling was an ulcer. And it must have been through years of eating and bad eating habits. But in addition to that, when I came from under sedation, the doctor stated that my diabetes, type 2 diabetes, was at an extremely dangerous level, at a comatose level. And I was experiencing all of the byproducts of advanced stages of type 2 diabetes that included tingling in my hands and feet, which was neuropathic nerve damage, as well as high blood pressure, high cholesterol. My entire body was really breaking down. And I, I was extremely terrified uh, at this journey, this new norm that I was faced with. So I, I heard you talk about this before, and I think you said you found all this out on a Friday and they wanted to put you on all kinds of meds right that minute. And you said, give me the weekend. <laughs> yes, I just wanted, I wanted some time. I said to myself that, you know what, I am not a doctor, but darn it, you know, I'm ex-cop. I know how to do investigations and I know how to read. And so... I wanted to just find the truth. And I, I visited five of the best doctors in the city, and they all told me the same thing, that this is my new norm and I need to get rid of this new life that I was about to enter into. And I went to the computer and looked up and Googled, instead of what the pamphlets had, living with diabetes, I Googled reversing diabetes. That one word different took me on a different trajectory and it introduced me to a new concept called whole food plant-based diet. Never heard that before. And it introduced me to new doctors, Dr. Esselting, uh, Dr. Barna, Dr. Gregor, and others. And I just started reading and I was at the computer saying, is this true? It was just hard to believe what they were saying that was in such contrast 
to what we were told all our lives. And I wanted to at least give myself a chance. And I called Dr. Estatine and flew to Ohio and visited and had a consultation with him. And the rest is history and has resulted in this just delightful book. So I want to ask you about some of the historical references around soul food eating. I mean, and and we know that the standard American diet is bad for everybody, but there there are such uh, obvious uh, ramifications in in the health and the African-American community. So talk to us a little bit about what black people are, are facing that maybe white people are not. Well, the standard American diet is bad for you. But soul food is the standard American diet on steroids. It is, the standard American diet, you take healthy food and you make it bad by adding different ingredients. And then when you go to soul food, you take that bad food and you you make it horrendous. Uh, When you think about some of the food in the African American uh, Caribbean community and even uh, the Spanish-speaking community, the lack of access to healthy food built into your recipes. Uh, you really built in how to make the food really as bad as possible. Uh, if you have uh, collard greens or kale, you want to put everything from oil to uh, fatty meat, uh, the process of meat being the center of the diet, uh, overuse of pro- processed sugar, overuse of white rice, uh, all the foods that really lead to uh, heart disease, hypertension, high blood pressure, diabetes, uh, kidney failure, those foods are being fed on a regular basis. And then the lack of access to food, healthy food, uh, because you live in a very fast food generation, uh, fast food environment, Everything from the chain fast food to some of the local uh, restaurants and takeout, uh, they really focus and center around uh, bad food. And so I wanted to show in the book Healthy at Last the origin of some of the foods that we call soul food and see the connections. And really, it is reflective in all communities when you do the origin of how we start eating what we're eating you see that it's really, for the most part, talk, uh, tied to a dark past. Well, you've certainly shone a light on that. And also, you explained something that I had, had never realized before, that the prevalence of fast food outlets in minority neighborhoods is not accidental. Can you give us a little of the history of that? Uh, uh, no, it's not. It's not accidental. And really, it led to... Uh, some time ago when uh, governmental changes uh, were made in this country uh, to really plant and put uh, fast food in these locations as part of employment, part of rebuilding the community. So a good intention produced a bad result. And because it wasn't really thought out, and a real understanding that we can't have disjointed 
policies, even when we talk about economic development. That's why it's so important, and I talk about this often, that when we start to solve problems, we cannot have solutions that create other problems. And that is what we did when we started to do what was called a reinvestment in these communities. We invested these fast foods and we really thought economic development was about just opening opening shops and fast food locations without having a real understanding of the impact of serving these foods. Well, and, and you can see it. You, you, can, you can see these places everywhere, but we're also seeing other things cropping up. I mean, I realize COVID has kind of put a stop on the wonderful uh, <laughs> boon in, in better restaurants, but, but people are out there trying to make this change, and it's really revolutionary and exciting. So Here's the question that I think everybody wants an answer to, and you're there on the inside and you can answer it like nobody else. Who really eats worse, police officers or politicians? Oh, my gosh. Uh, if If I am allowed, then I would say when you go to the videotape, you would get a tie. Okay. Now, one could say that that is a politician's answer. <laughs> but I guess the truth is everybody in this country, when when we're presented with these pleasure trap foods, every human is going to want those kind of foods until we do something different. And then we find that what we're eating now is absolutely delicious and fabulous. So true. And there's, there's another component to this that I think impacts uh elected officials, civil servants, and police officers as a civil servant. What happens is that food is more than what we put in our mouths. It is how we self-medicate ourselves through trauma. As I pointed out in the book, uh, I will often eat that Philly steak, that apple pie, that fast food to just really cope with some of the trauma that I experienced. And when you look at civil servants, if it's a teacher, hospital employee, police officer, firefighter, you res- we respond to incidents when our citizens are at their worst, not at their best. No one invites a police officer to a birthday party. They invite them there when the party was disrupted in some way. And a doctor are seeing paid people when they're at their lowest point medically. And so when you do that day after day, night after night, we use food many times as a coping mechanism. And without realizing, as I pointed out in Healthy at Last, that instead of building your immune system, instead of building your mental state, it's actually tearing it down. And it's bringing you from going up to a sugary high to a real deep low once you come down. Mm. So how do people respond to you? I realize now with COVID, you're not probably (laughs) doing as much activity as as you did a year ago, but I think in in your work and being out in the world, you know, you're offered food a lot. You're, You're hobnobbing with people. How does it work for a high profile person to eat as you eat? And that's a great uh, question, Victoria, because 
I'm, I am asked that question often because you know, and I, I know, that food is a welcoming, particularly for many cultural groups. They offer food as a show and display of respect. And so when you go into various communities and you turn down food, sometimes people are deeply offended. And what I've learned is that in every restaurant, every event, there is a healthy choice you can make. If I go to a restaurant and I have dinner with friends, I'll look at the menu. Some of the best things that, that I assemble together come will come from the appetizers menu. If I see something on the menu that says steak and broccoli, I know they have broccoli in the house. If I see asparagus and tuna, I know they have asparagus in the house. And so I will assemble together and ask the chef. And in many cases, the chef is more the chef or the waiter is more than willing to assist me. And I will ask them, can they put together a vegetarian or a vegan type plate for me? And I rarely have a problem. And even when I go visit the different cuisines of friends and associates or those who are constituents, even in their home cooked meals, there are different things you can mix and match uh, that can give you a nice, healthy way of being respectful, respectable to the host and still get a great meal in the process. And many people, once they learn that, you know, what are my dietary restrictions, uh, they are extremely supportive. And I, I thank people a lot for that. And it's very important. So one thing that I've seen is that people do understand that eating plant-based, it, it's something of a cuisine. It's like, well, let's do Italian tonight and Ethiopian tomorrow night, and then we'll do plant-based on Saturday. But the idea that somebody really wants to do this as a lifestyle is less popular. So when you talk with people and they find out about your diet, do, do most of them express an interest in wanting to take part or do they just sort of admire from a distance, but it's not for them? <laughs> Great question. That is why I think one of the most important sections in my book is the section where the recipes are. Because before you delve into the power of going plant-based, you need to dispel the myth of plant-based. People have a tendency to believe that you're walking around with grass in your po pocket all the time <laughs> and you're eating boring foods when in fact you are having this, this amazing repertoire of different meals. Prior to going plant-based, I had only about seven or eight meals that I just rotated. Every morning, I ate, I ate the two eggs on a roll with ham or bacon and a large glass of sugary orange juice. Uh, for lunch, I had the same thing. For dinner, I had the same thing. Now, I have about 60 different meals that I make, and many of some of them are in my recipe section of the book. And I think once people start to see uh, how you can eat a healthy meal without giving up the visual aspect of seeing a good meal, 
the taste aspect of meals tasting good and the nutritional aspect. It's a win, win, win. And the, the number one way I get people to start embracing plant-based is after they eat at my house and they finish the meal, I say, by the way, that was plant-based. And they say, are you kidding me? And once you taste it and understand the potentials, you get a different energy. Oh, it is a different energy. It's a, it's, and it's wonderful. And I have to tell you, when your book first arrived, I have this bad habit, I guess it's a bad habit, of starting to leaf through books from the back. So the very first thing that my eye fell on when I first received your book, expecting this is all going to be health, 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 easy chocolate truffles, no baked <laughs> sweet potato bars with raw gingerbread crust, basmati rice pudding, and three-ingredient ice cream. I'm just like, what? <laughs> but of course, you know, you are very true to your convictions. You know, sometimes you'll read a book that's like, okay, we're all into health. Now we're going to have the recipes and they're going to break a bunch of the rules. This is not like that. This is whole food, plant-based cuisine, certainly lots of entrees and other things, not just desserts. But when you read from the back, you get the desserts first. And and from wonderful people, wonderful people who've been on this program, uh, Janae Claiborne, Del Shroof. So you got the best of the best here. So when you look at the COVID world or even New York City in this very strange time in history and juxtapose that with health in general and healthy eating. How do things look to you and how are we going to get out of this? Well, we have to really become intentional about not operating in silos. That is so important. We fail to look at how we are creating the crises in our countries by the day-to-day behaviors. And many of the things we are facing are really self-inflicted wounds that we create. I can't tell a person what to serve on his grill in his backyard, but taxpayers' dollars should not go to feeding the crisis. So we we should not have a school system that is in conflict with the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene by serving 960,000 meals a day that causes childhood obesity, childhood diabetes, childhood asthma, while we have another agency that's doing everything that's possible to prevent these diseases from continuing to grow. And so I believe the way we address this is to look at how do we create policies, initiatives, and programs that would have taxpayers' dollars go to addressing the crisis and not feeding it. And nothing personifies that more than the COVID-19 pandemic. This was a great opportunity for the city to introduce plant-based healthy meals to residents of the city that they were actually looking for the city to give them meals. We gave millions of meals away through grab and grow programs and other home deliveries. Yet those meals did nothing to strengthen the immune system of the people who could potentially be impacted by COVID. 
And we could have actually made a major impact on diabetes, heart disease, and other chronic diseases. And we lost that opportunity. I think that as we look towards the future of how do you feed New Yorkers, we must feed New Yorkers with health, healthy food, healthy choices, and introduce them on how to empower their lives and in the process strengthen their immune system and strengthen our healthcare system. That is a tall order, and yet it's so sensible. It's going to have to happen. The first step that we can all do as individuals is get a hold of this book. I mean, honestly, you are going to love this book. <laughs> You're going to love this book even if you think, well, I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to go eat junk food. Read it anyway. You will love it. <laughs> Healthy at Last by Eric Adams. And also check out the Facebook page, Healthy at Last BK. That's for book. Uh, Healthy at Last BK on Instagram. And, of course, we will put all that on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. In our last minute, Brooklyn Borough President Adams, tell us how much happier, or maybe I worded that wrong, how does it feel to be healthy at last? Uh, uh, you, wrote it, you wrote it correctly. Uh, you don't know the depth of your sadness until you step into happiness. We've normalized being unhealthy. We've normalized um, feeling bloated, feeling tired, feeling lethargic. We've normalized that. And when you realize that that is not how we were meant to be as human beings, you almost say to yourself in a real way, you know, wow, I feel healthy at last. The body that we all want is right there if we would just get out of its way three times a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I love how you describe that. And I see now that the way I started to word the question of what's it like to be so much happier is really because I've experienced that too over the past 36 years. And it's not just healthy, not healthy. It's happy and hard to be happy. So uh, let's go for healthy at last and uh, happy all over. This is uh, the new book by Eric Adams, Healthy at Last, a plant-based approach to preventing and reversing diabetes and other chronic illnesses. Thanks to both of our guests. Thanks to Unity Online Radio. God bless you and eat every single one of your veggies. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. We talk to the animals and we know you can too. On the Animal Communication Podcast hosted by the three of us, myself, Julie Heert, Aaron Debbie Smith, and Meredith Tolleson. We will show you how to deepen your relationship with your beloved animal companions, whether they're alive or in spirit. As soul-level animal communicators, we explain the process and explore topics such as health, behavior, and play, all from the animal's perspective. So subscribe and follow us on Apple, Spotify, 
and listen as part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.